Hello, happy new year and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $154 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. As we start to recover from the holiday season and come to grips with all of those charges to our credit cards, I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues Neil Austria and Rob Busing. Neil is a senior analyst covering the consumer discretionary sector, and Rob is a senior analyst covering the consumer stables and durable sectors. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having us. And the topic of today's podcast is, can consumers keep spending? We'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover on our podcast and how we can make them better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So I'm glad to be here. Um, You guys are the first podcast here in 2020. Rob, I think the last time that we had you on, you were dialing in from across the country. I was, and now I'm here in person. Is this all that you thought it would be? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, I think this is a very important topic here for the U.S. economy because the consumer is 70% of our economic activity. And quite frankly, our dashboard, which is a group of 12 indicators that have historically signaled an upcoming recession, the only positive section in that dashboard continues to be the consumer. All four of them are green. And if the consumer starts to roll over, that could mean a bad thing for the U.S. economy. So let's dive into it. Neil, I'm going to start with you. I'm interested to know what data points you follow most closely to gauge the strength of consumers and where they're spending. So obviously, there's a bunch of macro data points that we look at. You know, Jeff, you, you follow that pretty closely. For me, myself, I tend to spend a lot of time with um, Census Advanced Monthly Retail Trade Reports. Um, <laughs> Jeez, that's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's going to be reported uh, next week, actually. There's other third-party sources that you can look at, such as MasterCard Spending Pulse data, and so that looks at their payment network. So they're looking at what you're spending. Right. It's like Big Brother. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It can get pretty uh, pretty creepy. And then there's several retailers that have uh, reported holiday sales already in recent days, and I would expect a number to report next week ahead of a large consumer conference. Nice, nice. Now, now, Rob, I know that you cover stables and durables. What indicators are most important in some of the more less cyclical areas of consumer spending? Sure. So consumer staples products are typically more like daily necessity type products and thus are less driven by more psychological factors, for example, consumer confidence. However, consumers do demonstrate proclivity to trade up and trade down depending on their economic situation. That could be both in terms of usage frequency of the product as well as the quality of that product. So, For example, if things are going really well, you might buy the super fancy whitening toothpaste and use a really (laughs) full full pea-sized dollop on your toothbrush when you're brushing your teeth. Whereas if things are going a little more poorly, you'll just buy the regular baseline toothpaste and you'll use a little bit less per brushing session. But you're still going to be buying toothpaste most likely unless things have really gone gone sideways. (laughs) So the most relevant factors that I focus on are more objective metrics, you know, wage growth for consumers as well as unemployment rate and employment growth generally. In environments where employment is strong, consumer income growth is pretty good, you do see some trade-up and usage frequency increase, as you'd expect in many staples categories. However, the purchase behavior obviously doesn't change as much versus more discretionary categories, particularly like bigger ticket items, which I guess you could say have the most flexibility where people can usually defer that purchase longer until a time where they're feeling more confident about their future prospects. Sure. 
So you could keep using your old couch for a longer period of time, whereas you're going to buy a new couch only if you're feeling pretty pretty good about uh, the upcoming year and your your income. Well, interesting. They, we have a chart that we put into the new uh, long deck for anatomy of recession, and it shows that the University of Michigan asks consumers, is now a good time to buy a large, durable good? And uh, people have been saying no. They've been actually getting more bearish about buying large, durable goods. I don't know if that's a bad omen for the economy, but it might not be a good thing for furniture sales. Yeah, and that's really interesting. They actually kind of dovetails a little bit into some of the stuff I'm seeing in auto sales. So autos have had a pretty good run since 2016 in the U.S. Um, they actually, you know, sales peaked in the kind of 17.8 million range. And since then, have actually been declining a little bit each year, which has been, you could say, a, an early indicator that maybe the sales levels have gotten a little stretched versus what the natural demand is. Right, but, but it's been better in the U.S. than, say, Europe and, and China, though, for sure. Well, absolutely, particularly over that, that time frame, the declines haven't been nearly as potent. But one of the things that's really interesting about this cycle in particular is the um, average sales price per vehicle has actually been a big growth driver this cycle. And that's driven a lot by a big mix shift where consumers are preferring sport utility vehicles and crossover vehicles and pickup trucks versus sedans uh, historically when those tend to carry higher prices. How quickly we forget the price spike of 2008 with oil. Now everybody's very comfortable with oil staying low. Absolutely. But one other factor that matters, though, is the fuel efficiency of those vehicles has gotten markedly better over time. So it's become less of a a hit to the wallet to be driving a gas guzzler than it was in the past. But one of the things that's kind of interesting, getting back to our cyclical discussion, there has been a easing of financing terms in the auto market. So the average loan tenor has stretched from about 60 months when you buy a car to 69 months. So almost six years. Exactly, almost six years. And the percentage of people that are leasing a car is up to almost a third, where it was about 15% even as recently as like five years ago. So essentially what that means is people have been using the same amount of money to get the equivalent of a more car. Okay. Um, and that obviously works fine right now, but it could be a little bit of a warning sign if things start to slow down because essentially that creates a lot more risk in the system because people have been stretching to, to sort of buy more vehicle. Now, is it risk, you know, you're thinking from the corporate side or risk from the consumer side if uh, they get obviously a slowdown in economic growth and layoffs or, or both? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both because this type of weakening could come from either direction. If consumer confidence weakens, then people might not be feeling confident enough to lease an Audi instead of a, a Toyota or whatever, or they may just keep their old car for longer. And then on the corporate side, from the OEM perspective, you know, obviously volume declines, just given the fixed cost in that business can be disproportionately painful. So having volumes start to decline will have a pretty meaningful impact on the financial uh, fundamentals of those companies. Well, and that actually rhymes with the latest retail sales report that we got out. It was up 0.2% uh, in November. Year-over-year retail sales are up 3.3%. Retail sales have been up eight out of the last nine months. So it's been a healthy environment. But autos, uh, surprisingly, were leading the way last month, and they were up 0.5%. And that was uh, something that helped juice the numbers. Yeah, I would probably take those with a grain of salt, just because the GM strike from a few months ago is still being kind of worked out through the system a little bit. So some of the the more recent auto numbers are are probably a bit less indicative than they typically are. But generally speaking, we are in a pretty good spot where the consumer is. Like people are still spending money, people are confident in general. So we haven't really seen that kind of weakening yet. My point is just that a uh, risk kind of exists in the system now. So that's one of the the factors that we should keep an eye on going forward. 
And one of the things that I've been monitoring here is the difference between high earners and low earners. So for the most part of this cycle is really the high earners that were driving that wage growth. And then in 2015, it flipped where the bottom earners are getting a lion's share of these price gains. I think the latest print that we saw that's bottom 25% were earning 4.4%, which is well above the 3% number that we're seeing. And this is a, a really good dynamic, right? Because the bottom income earners tend to disproportionately spend most of their paycheck, and that gives an instant boost to the economy. I mean, that would probably be good for, for both of your sectors, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how you're positioned. But yeah, I think when you look at the lower deciles of earners, that's a, a much broader spectrum. You can get a you know, rising tide, and you're seeing it in um, some of the more mass players, whether it's a Walmart or a Target, dollar stores. That's where you're seeing the benefit, whereas more of the high-end discretionary, that, that's where you could see some of the slowing or moderation. Now, oh, did you have something to add? Sure. I was going to say on the Staples side, so there are definitely certain categories which have disproportionate impacts from lower wage growth earners. You know, a couple examples might be like uh, cheaper beer as well as, as tobacco products. <laughs> Those tend to over-index. So it's not just college kids that are buying the cheap beer? Exactly. And then the other side on, on housing, actually. So Entry-level housing has been one of the slowest areas of recovery this cycle. The the luxury housing obviously recovered much more quickly. And since you're seeing some of that wage growth at the lower end, that has been a nice boost to affordability of housing, which has been one of the big themes of kind of why housing demand has been kind of weak so far this cycle. And so it's a positive sign for for that market. Yeah. If you look at uh, one of the indicators that we have in the dashboards, housing permits, they're up to a run rate of 1.48 million, which is close to cycle highs. It easily beat consensus. And to your point, single family housing has been at the bright spot this year, really since it bottomed out in February, where multi-units were a driver for most of this cycle. That, that kind of changed over a couple of years ago. And one thing that I like about housing is the NAHB survey, which is the home builder survey, is at 20-year highs right now. That bodes well, I think, for that part of the economy, even though it's shrunk as a percent of the economy over the last couple of years. It's still a, a healthy 4.5% weighting in, in GDP. And when consumers see their house prices going up, they get more optimistic and will, will likely spend more. Now, let's like switch gears here. I want to talk about something that was a big fear coming into the tail end of this year, which was the holiday spending season. It was going to be shortened this year. It was very condensed. I feel like after uh, Thanksgiving hit, you had Black Friday, and all of a sudden it was Christmas. Neil, tell me a little bit about uh, your thoughts on the holiday sales season. Were there big surprises or disappointments? Yeah, I mean, so as you mentioned, uh, entering the holiday season, we were actually going to have there were six fewer days between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas as compared to last year. So I think there was trepidation heading into the season. November sales, like you had mentioned before, were good, although there was a deceleration. So if you look at retail sales, ex food, auto, and gas, there was a 70 basis point moderation from October levels, despite an easier comparison. And, you know, we're going to get a, a gauge next week on December sales. So far, we've seen uh, master spending pulse data reported 3.4% growth for the November-December holiday period, which was... Which is healthy. Yeah, it's slightly better than their expectations going into the season, which I think was 3.1. Although I would point out that it's, you know, more moderate than we've seen in the last several years. Thinking about trends in the space from an online disruption perspective, the same data set had shown online penetration reached 14.6% of sales compared to 12.7% a year ago, so a 200 basis point uh, shift between channels. 
Said another way, online grew 19% and drove nearly 70% of incremental growth during the holiday periods, while brick and mortar only grew 1%. So, so you're saying Amazon's taking over the world? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, so from a company-specific perspective, you know, you've seen several department stores such as Macy's, JCPenney's, Kohl's. They've reported holiday sales in the last week, and in general, it was quite mixed relative to expectations. And collectively, they weakened sequentially versus third quarter. Other specialty retailers in the mall have not fared much better, such as Limited Brands, which operates Victoria's Secret, and Urban Outfitters, lowering their fourth quarter guidance on mixed sales and heavier promotions. On the flip side, though, Costco had stellar results. They had a 6.5% comp for November-December with nice traffic growth, and they saw an acceleration from prior period trends, uh, which we attribute to um, you know, the company's strong merchandising, their exceptional value, um, and as well as their scale and their ability to kind of fun prices uh, through their membership model. I would actually argue I helped Costco's numbers. I bought a gra- <laughs> Costco garage door. It was an excellent experience, and I get a 10% gift card back. There you go. It's a win-win. There you go. Right. So uh, overall, I would think investor expectations I mentioned before were tempered going into the holiday season. And, and there was also uh, fears for January since you have tougher comparisons versus a year ago since January sales a year ago were boosted from an early release of uh, food stamp benefits due to the government shutdown last year. The early read is that the holiday has been solid, if unspectacular, and the consumer is continuing to do its part to drive the economy. And that said, it's not a rising tide that lifts all boats, and we continue to see the same market share shifts between winners and losers continue to play out. Now, Neil, I'm going to stay with you for a second, because this is a dynamic that I've talked a lot about with our clients, is that historically, consumer discretionary stocks tend to underperform late cycle. They're, They're certainly one of the first sectors to rebound once you go into a recession and a large downturn, but they tend to underperform early. So are, are you seeing any signs of weakness with the, the companies and the industries that you cover? Right. So as you mentioned, as the, the space recovers quickest on full price sales, and then as the cycle progresses, we start to see competition amongst retailers increase as square footage builds, inventories build, and then they start to feel the pinch from cost inflation as well as wage inflation as the unemployment rate comes down. We are starting to see these factors play out, although the consumer discretionary S&P subsector has continued to outperform relative to the overall S&P to date. I would say that the consumer's health continues to be in decent shape if you were to look at declining household debt rates and rising net worth rates. Interestingly, under unlike the prior two cycles, we've seen a rise in the savings rate rather than a decline as the cycle progresses, and that's something to watch. And that I think that underscores... The, the consumer health is there, but it's coming at the expense of personal consumption, which has been bad for my sector. In addition, another difference this cycle has been the rise of online sales. And so while we continue to hear of record store closures, around 10,000 in 2019, last I counted, overall retail square footage is being replaced by online fulfillment centers as Amazon and other players like Walmart move to next day shipping. At the company, We've tended to look at which consumer discretionary stocks look to benefit from rising wages, which at this point is happening mostly with lower to middle income earners, as we mentioned before. So that, that would be like a Walmart, McDonald's, or a TJX that also benefit from a, a trade down in case the cycle would turn at this point. Now, Rob, I know that you talked about housing and we talked a little bit about the dynamics going on there, but there are there any other areas that uh, you like going forward? Yeah, so... I continue to like premium position household and personal care companies and beverages companies that have demonstrated strong pricing power, particularly in rational competitive environments, rational competitive sets. So so not like the airlines from the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this gets to the point that Neil was kind of making earlier. It's 
it's really good in an environment right now because they can kind of maintain performance as things are going well. They benefit from some trade up. But then also, if things start to weaken, they have that pricing power such that you're not going to all of a sudden see a bunch of irrationality. And I actually think they should continue to outperform in a weakening economic environment as well, just because people want that stability of, of growth. So tend to prefer those. And then and a more kind of interesting theme that I've been looking at a lot more. So some of the specialty ingredient companies, uh, there's some real secular growth opportunities because the CPG companies are focused much more on innovating much more quickly and making consumers very sensitive to ingredient labels. So focus on clean label and sort of innovation that meets that consumer need. And they have to lean a lot more on these companies, these specialty ingredient companies to do so. So I actually think this space is going to outperform overall CPG as these companies continue to shift their spending I guess more of like outsource their spending the, on development to to these companies. So that's an area that I've been looking at a lot. And obviously, that's an area that can't get uh, disintermediated by Amazon, right? It's, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're protected for now. At least. Definitely not a risk of that. <laughs> Speaking of Amazon's dominance, Neil, how important it is it for retailers to have multi-channel presence? And maybe you can share some stocks that you believe are, are well positioned here. So having an omni-channel approach to retailing and being available whenever, wherever, and however she wants the product uh, while doing it at the lowest cost possible is going to be critical going forward, especially as you mentioned with Amazon and with their move to next day, same day shipping. Increasingly, retailers are looking at their store footprint as assets that can be used for traditional retail, but also as local e-com fulfillment nodes. So for example, Walmart has 4,700 stores within 10 miles of 90% of the population. That's, that's interesting. And that, you know, yeah, right, exactly. And that can be leveraged as either curbside pickup locations, and we already have a population that's used to drive-through windows for fast food, uh, or as a means to lower last-mile delivery costs. Um, looking at on the brand side, switching over to that side, um, multi-channel will have a different meaning. In that case, it's going to be who can be the most successful in building out a direct-to-consumer experience that is e-com-led, and supplemented with select retail expansion to basically offset store closures of undifferentiated retail, while also co-investing to strengthen retailers that do have differentiated retail. It's also going to be about how successful the brand can be in maintaining price integrity online, particularly marketplaces such as Amazon. Factors that influence that can be how fragmented their category is and how susceptible the category is to challenger brands. Uh, price integrity will also be about controlling excess pools of inventory. And so in an ideal scenario, it would be one where you could move to what the consumer views as a single pool of inventory that supplies whatever channel he or she is shopping in. So that's unlikely to happen any time in the near future, but there are companies such as Nike that are, are striving for that. And speaking of Amazon, I would argue one of the reasons we haven't had a lot of inflation, among many, uh, during this cycle is because of Amazon and being able to have consumers get the best price for any product that they're necessarily looking for. So there's been a lot more competition. But how let's just say inflation, in generally speaking, how much of a threat is that to consumer stocks? And how do you position eventually for higher prices? I, I, I don't know when that's going to be. It could be next year. It could be five years from now. But how do you position for that? And, and Rob, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just to echo your point, in general, what we're seeing right now is that wage growth is actually outpacing CPI. So that's kind of a bit of a Goldilocks environment for a lot of my companies, the Sables companies, because it essentially represents real wage gains. So, you know, there's certain pockets where we've seen some inflationary headwinds, you know, freight for a couple of years ago, uh, volatility in certain commodity inputs like sugar and aluminum. But general rule of thumb, haven't seen much evidence, at least as of yet, that uh, consumer product inflation is is a concern in the near term. That being said, as to whether it is a threat, I think varies pretty wildly by category. 
and it also matters what's driving that inflation. So some mild commodity inflation can actually be good for CPG companies as it allows them to go to the retailers and say, we want a price increase and here's why it's justified. And that actually can, can be a little bit of a tide that lifts all boats. The general rule of thumb that I keep for this is if you operate in a fairly consolidated category that has little private label exposure and rational price behavior amongst the few competitors in that category, you tend to be pretty well insulated against inflation versus if you deal with a large competitive set and you have meaningful private label exposure in your category. So for example, I think carbonated soft drinks as a category, there's pretty much only three competitors. There's no it's real Coke, private Pepsi label. and Dr. Pepper. Okay. No real private label to speak of. And they all play nice on pricing. Coke will lead pricing and they'll all follow. It's <laughs> it's very, and they've, they've it's kind of collusion. figured it out. It's not collusion. They've just all figured out it, it works really well for them to do this. And then I compare that to something, toilet paper, for example. I mean, it's still, there's, that's not a super fragmented category, but there's meaningful private label exposure. And what you often see is that when commodity prices move, private label won't often follow the pricing increases that some of the branded players do. And that leads to a lot of consumer trade down because consumers will see that widening price gap. So the margins in a category like toilet paper tend to be much more volatile versus a category like carbonated soft drinks. Neil, any thoughts on, uh, on inflation? Um, so on the discretionary side, particularly retailers and restaurants, they've actually been pretty impacted on margins as a result of that. We've also seen several rounds of, uh, of tariffs now, which has also impacted some of these stocks. I think where we've been trying to position is to have ownership in stakes in companies that have pricing power that have the ability to pass through price onto its consumers. So that could either be because of brand strength or because the item is truly a necessity for the consumer, or because it's such a small part of their wallet share it would likely go unnoticed. In addition, we look for those that can leverage their scale against vendors, as well as those that have flexibility to move sourcing easily. Yeah, I, I personally think that inflation is going to be range-bound for the near term. You know, Obviously, the biggest driver of inflation is one of two things. So whether you're looking at CPI or PCE, it's wage growth, which uh, today's print came in below expectations. It's dipping back down. So it doesn't seem like inflation is going to be driven by that necessarily, but also higher commodity prices. And given Middle East geopolitics, you certainly could see a price of oil move higher from here. But there there seems to be a lot of uh, excess capacity out there that can come on instantly to be able to quell any supply issues. So near term, I think inflation is going to be relatively benign. But looking out a little bit further, maybe you start to see the dollar depreciate a lot more than uh, people anticipate because of the deficits and all of the obligations and entitlement programs. But Again, I don't think that's going to be a 2020 problem. That's probably 2025 or or sometime well farther down the road. The killer D's debt and demographics are a, a very powerful force. All right, so I think we've covered most of the topics here today. I just want to give you both the opportunity to give any parting thoughts for investors that are interested in, in getting consumer exposure. Neil, I'm, I'm, I was going to go with Rob there. I'm going to go with Neil. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts? Yeah, I mean, again, I would I would look at companies that have the ability to pass through price or that have momentum in their business today. We have stakes in companies like Walmart, McDonald's, Advanced Auto Parts has pricing power, and uh, among others. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot. I think it's hard to go wrong owning a consumer company, in my case, consumer staples company that has strong pricing power and exposure to favorable categories that are growing. I think those stocks can work in most environments, including if the expansion continues like it seems to be right now. 
but then they'd also be more resilient in a downturn, should outperform in a downturn due to their demand stability uh, and that ability to kind of manage through the, the more challenging environment. So I'd point to beverages players like Coca-Cola and select household and personal care products companies like P&G at places where I'd look to position. And from a dashboard perspective, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. All four are solidly green right now. We talked about permits being near cycle highs. Uh, jobless claims, I was a little nervous about a month and a half ago, but jobless claims have gone back down to the lower end of the range of 210,000. That's the one that I'm looking most closely at because when you've seen an increase of jobless claims of 12% year over year, and we're looking at the four-week moving average, you've never not had a recession. And the recession has always happened three months after that point. So the fact that jobless claims aren't taking up right now is a really good sign. Uh, retail sales, we talked about as healthy. And then last but not least, job sentiment is the only one that's borderline yellow, but the consumer right now still continues to be the workhorse of the U.S. economy. So I thank you both uh, for being in the booth with me today. Neil, Rob. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks, everybody, for joining in to the January version of the Clearbridge Podcast. We hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of January 10th, 2020, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.